please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. As you turn there, just a quick uh, reminder that um, we have our membership class beginning <coughs> Sunday, July 11th. So it'll be four weeks in a row beginning the 11th. And uh, it will be at 4 o'clock on each Sunday. Uh, if you're interested, if you've been praying about becoming a member here at Redeemer Bible Church, there are some uh, thing. There, there's a little card that you can fill out just to let us know that you're interested. It's not the full-on you know, membership application at that point. Just fill that out, and then we'll get in touch with you. You can put it in, in the offering box. Um, so please uh, be aware of that. I think it's just, we just it's beginning next week, so you've got to act quick if you want to do that. Uh, Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, looking at the next three plagues through chapter 9, verse 12. Exodus 8:20 says, "Now the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so, and there were great swarms of flies in, into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commanded us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord, that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked. And remove the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart 
this time also. And he did not let the people go. Chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and, to con and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. The Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day. And all the livestock of Egypt died. But the livestock of the sons of Israel, none died. Pharaoh said, And behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let them go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians as well as on, on magicians as well as on the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord has spoken to Moses. The title of this sermon is The Discriminating Love of God. The Discriminating Love of God. And I desire this morning, dear Christian, that you would live differently because God loves you differently. That you would live differently because God loves you differently. Now, imagine a wife, a husband and a wife, and the wife asked the husband if he loves her. Do you love me, dear? And the husband replies, my love, you know that I love all women. How would that go? Well, after the man recovers out of ICU, he would probably not say that again. You see, there is a special love that a husband has for his wife. At least there should be. There better be men. There is an intimacy. There is a strength, a devotion, an attention, a sweetness, and a power to that kind of love that a husband has for his wife that is distinct of all the other loves in his life. That woman should and must feel special in the eyes of her husband. As we've been looking at these plagues, we've seen that the central purpose of the plagues is to display God's supremacy and its glory. See, that's the, the main purpose. But there are other lesser but still important purposes and themes 
in these plagues. And one is to show God's exclusive love and care for his own people. You see, God discriminates how he treats his own people from how he treats those who reject him. He does. His love and his treatment for us, dear Christian, is distinct from his love and his treatments for those who are not his. And that's a good thing. The world would say, that's cruel. That's unjust. But we'll see today that there is a safety in this distinction that we should appreciate and celebrate. That there's a beauty of this distinction that we should that we should be in awe of. And there is also a product of this distinction that should change and affect how we live day to day. Those are the three points this morning. The safety of distinction, the beauty of distinction, and the product of distinction. First of all, the safety of distinction is very clear, very evident in the plagues, these three plagues of Egypt. Look with me again. Chapter 8, verse 22. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. Verse 23, then the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the house of his servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all of Egypt. Chapter 9, verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Jump down to verse 7. Pharaoh sent, after the, after the, the plague of the, of the uh, famine went out, Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. And then also in verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Not everybody had the boils. It was just the Egyptians. In chapter 8, verse 22, this word, set apart, rings out. And you can see that this is the focus of these three plagues, that there is this distinct... There's a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites, between Pharaoh's people and God's people. This word set apart is defined as treating somebody differently, distinctly. It is to distinguish between people. It is where we get our word uh, to discriminate. Now, discriminate has a, a bad a lot of bad baggage to it. But in and of itself, there are times where discrimination is good. The reasons why people discriminate are usually not good. For example, based on ethnicity or color of skin or socioeconomic class or what side of the street you're born on, whatever it might be, those discriminations are wrong and evil, and we should stand against them. But there are discriminations that even God has. He separates some people apart from other people. 
and he treats them differently. To be set apart is to be marked out for special treatment, just like a husband with a wife. That wife with that wedding ring is marked for special treatment by that man. Now, it was good for the Israelites, right, to be set apart from the Egyptians. Look at the plagues. I mean, if they weren't distinguished by God, then the ruin of the Egyptians would have been on them as well. Look at chapter 8, verse 24. Then the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh, the house of the servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. That laid waste is complete ruin. Complete ruin. Their houses, their land was spoiled by flies. Now, we can't eat a sandwich when a fly lands on our sandwich. Imagine everything has a fly on it. Everything's spoiled. And it's not just, ew, there's a fly on my food. No, it's, it's, it's the product of the flies is everywhere, and it's them eating and devouring the land, and it's, 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 it's just gross. And it made their houses, it made their land unusable. That's the word. It was unusable. The Israelites, however, experienced God's mercy and distinction. You see, there is mercy in this distinction of God. Without it, they would have lost all their livestock like the Egyptians. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. Behold, the, land, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field. The horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and on all the flocks. And look down at, at verse 6. So the Lord did this thing on the next day. All the livestock of Egypt died. So pestilence... Here is, is a plague. It's a plague. It's what we call plagues today. It's a disease, a sickness. It's, a, it's the kind of sickness, it's the same word that's used in 2 Samuel 24 for the sickness that killed 70,000 people in the course of three days. That's severe. That is severe. And for the Egyptians, the result that all of their livestock was killed. Well, that doesn't mean much to us today. What does that mean? Well, it would be like today, you losing all of your cars, having no mode of transportation, there's no gasoline anywhere that you can find, and so you can't even catch a bus to somewhere. You can't go anywhere. You go to the grocery store, and the meat and the dairy section are just white clean, and you're forced to be a vegetarian for months. I don't know if many of us would survive that. But that's what they went through. Imagine the upheaval of life that that would cause. The Israelites, God's people, were spared of that. The Israelites found safety in God's distinction of them. We see that with the boils as well. Chapter 9, verse 9. It will become fine dust all over the land of Egypt and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. Verse 11, 
The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, because, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Only the Egyptians suffered these boils. A, a boil was a skin disease. It's usually caused by some sort of uh, bacterial infection. Literally, what would happen is the infection would eat into the skin so that it would get inflamed, and it would feel like the skin is on fire. And eventually, ulcers or bumps would appear on the skin, and they would get so big that they would burst open, leaving the skin vulnerable for more infection. It's gross. These boils went past just being gross, though. They were so debilitating and so painful that the magicians could not even get up and stand before Moses. They couldn't get up and walk around. But the Israelites, because they were God's chosen people, were spared from all of that suffering. Imagine what that would have been like. To have flies all over your stuff, right? Those leave. Your livestock killed. And then sometime later, you're covered with boils. And you look across the street, and your, your, your Israelite neighbor across the street is just doing just fine. Milking their cows, their goats, right? You can hear their livestock out the window. You can see them playing with their children, having no issues of boils or disease or sickness. Imagine that distinctness. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, there is something coming from the hand of God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. There is something coming from the hand of God, the finger of God. A great plague. But this plague that is coming is a great and eternal plague, you could say. Something that makes these flies, the pestilence, and the boils look like small, minor inconveniences. Matthew 25, verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. This is Christ on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate, notice that word, separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep, from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth, of the world. Well, what happens to the others? Jump down to verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. Not those that lived good enough, but those that are righteous in Christ, an imputed righteousness by faith. There is coming a day, church, where God's eternal judgment for the sins of mankind will be like this inundation of a plague that is inescapable for the world. God will sentence them, not to a place of temporary suffering, where you might hope to one day escape, but to a place of eternal torment and pain. Not to a place where you can think, well, I'll I'll pay off my bad deeds eventually. No. He's going to sentence the sinner to a place that is called the lake of fire. That is hell. But his people, his people will be spared. There will be a great distinction between those that are his and those who are not. Now hell is... Something that we don't like to talk about, but we must. Christ talked about it most. And it is a shame in the church today that hell is avoided or even denied. Hell is a real place. And it's not some place where bad people are going to one day go and hang out. No. There is no, I'll see you in hell. No, you will not. You will not see each other there. It's not a purgatory where you can go and pay off the debt of your sins for some time and then eventually be released to heaven. Hell is not a place where God is absent either, where his presence does not reach. No, as a matter of fact, hell will be full of the presence of God, but only the manifestation of his anger and wrath and judgment. Certainly, hell will be void of all the good things of God. His kindness, His love, His mercy, His provision, His joy, His peace, His pleasure. All those things that we benefit from God, none of that will be in hell. Not a drop. Rather, God in his fury and his rage, his hatred, his wrath, his righteous indignation towards those who would reject his son will fill every corner of hell. Matthew 13.50 says that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be excruciating. Now, some might say, but, you know, God loves the sinner and hates the sin, right? Why such dark, such a dark message? God loves the sinner and hates the sin, doesn't he? No. Why, if that's true, then why does God send the sinner into hell for all eternity? No, the sinner will one day hear the words uttered to him, Get away from me, Matthew 25, 41. 
God will not want to and not be able to tolerate their presence. Psalm 5, 5 says that God hates all who do iniquity. It doesn't say God hates sin or God hates iniquity. He says he hates those who do the iniquity. Now, the reply is, but what about John 3.16? Doesn't John 3.16 say that God loves the world? Yes, absolutely. In fact, he loves the world so much that he would give his only son for them. Absolutely, he loves the world. And absolutely, his offer of grace and forgiveness is genuinely and authentically given to all who would believe in Christ. It's an open invitation. But, but, many continue in their unbelief and rejection of Christ. And so they still have God as their enemy. And so yes, God can hate the sinner and love the sinner at the exact same time. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So you might have trouble loving somebody and being irritated or, or angry or hate, hating them at the same time. That might be difficult for you, but you're not God. God can love and hate the same person at the same time. Now what stuns us is that God would respond to our sinfulness with grace and love at all. Ephesians 2 This phrase should stun us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So yes, He hates you in your sin, but yet because He is rich in mercy and because He loves you, he makes you alive in Christ. And He restores your relationship with Him. While we were still sinners, God sent His Son to be judged for our sins in our place. And then He changed our hearts, didn't He, Christian? He changed your heart. He changed your mind so that you would believe on Him for salvation. And now He sets us apart from the rest of humanity. Praise be to God. We are now safe in that gracious distinction that God has made between us and the rest of the world. Find safety there, Christian. But is that distinction that God makes really good? Is he really just in that? You know, we're told that justice means that everybody has the same stuff. That's not justice. Justice is treating somebody fairly. We're, we've been sold a bag of lies, church, that in order to have justice, everybody has to have the same outcome. 
That's equity. That's even that. That is a trampling on what the word equity means. But that's how it's used today. So they call that equity. Equity is not equality. Equity is not justice. If you want everybody to have exactly the same outcome of life, then you have to be unjust and biased in order to get there. So you have to, you have to offload justice in order for everybody just to have all the same stuff. It's a necessary evil to have that outcome. So don't believe that. Because that contradicts exactly what the scriptures say is justice. That is the opposite of how God treats us. There are not equal outcomes for everybody. Especially when we speak eternally. God has ordained it that some will have a very different outcome of eternity than others. Is that good? The world would say that's cruel and unjust. But is God, <clears throat> excuse me, is God still good and just even though he shows mercy and grace to some and not others? The answer, short answer is yes. But why? This is the, the beauty of distinction our second point this morning. Why is God still just even though he shows mercy and grace to some and not others? Well, first of all, we must remember that no one desires nor deserves mercy and grace. Nobody. Put it another way, everybody deserves wrath. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're this way from birth. Psalm 58.3 says the same thing. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So they're born a sinner. That little angel that you hold in your arms is a little sinner. Romans 3, we know this text, Romans 3, 10 through 12. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. How more clear can God be? None of you are good enough. None of you even want to be good enough. No one seeks for God. Everybody turns aside from God. All sinners have rejected God from their birth. They have rejected His kind presence, his mercy, his goodness, his righteousness, his forgiveness, his love. And hell is simply God giving the sinner what he or she really wants, absence of God, or absence of his goodness and what he offers to him in this life anyways. So no, God is not unjust. He's giving us exactly what we want. And it's not like we're clamoring at the gates of heaven 
No. I, I don't know if you noticed, but there wasn't, you didn't get stuck in a traffic jam on the way to church this morning. The world doesn't want this. So we shouldn't be surprised. Secondly, is God still good and just even when he shows grace to some and not others? Yes. First, we saw that nobody wants him anyways, and they all deserve wrath anyways. But also, if no one seeks for God, and if no one is able to be good enough for God, if no one really wants God's mercy and grace, then secondly, we are completely dependent on God to first love us. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, God says. Acts 13.48, as many as has been appointed to eternal life believed. They have to be appointed to eternal life if they are to ever believe. Ephesians 1, turn with me there. Ephesians 1. We see here one of the richest texts regarding predestination, election, the peculiar, distinct love of God. Ephesians 1 verse 4, just as he chose us in him, that is the Father chose us in Christ, <clears throat> before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So we see here that he chose us. The Father chose us in Christ. Not only that, but he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters of God. The reason why you're in the family, dear Christian, is because God chose you. Because he went out and got you. He adopted you. It's not because you were born into the right family. It's not because you were so smart. It's not because you have the right pedigree. No, he went out and got you. And you needed him to do that. Because you weren't looking for him, were you? You weren't, you weren't searching for God. You were on your way to hell, loving every minute of it. If you're honest, you loved every minute of it. Because you were blind and dead in soul. But God interrupted you. He chose you. He predestined you to be his own. So out of his love, God chose some sinners, some sinners out of the mob of sinful humanity. Out of his love, he chose some. Now, if your response to that, to, to God choosing to save some and not others, is, well, that's not fair then please tell me, what would be fair? What would be fair? Think about it. 
You want fairness. What would be fair for every sinner? Would it not be that the fair thing for God to do is just to cast us all into hell right now? That's what's fair. That's what's fair. If we would never choose him, then he must first choose us. If he didn't choose us, there would be no salvation for anybody. Third, answering this question, is God still good and just even though he shows mercy to some and not others? Again, we've seen that yes, because nobody wants him anyways and all deserve wrath. And secondly, because we are completely dependent on him choosing us because we'll never choose him. But also, the basis the basis, the grounds of him choosing some and not others is rooted entirely in his sovereign love and grace. It has nothing to do with you. It's entirely rooted in his love and grace. Look here, Ephesians 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then notice this. It's a bad breaking of the verse, but... It's in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You see, it is in love that he chose us. It wasn't out of obligation. It wasn't because you earned it. It wasn't because he looked down through the, through the, through the tunnel of time, you could say, and he looked down and he saw... Oh, Aaron's going to choose me. Aaron is, would be a good Christian. Or Aaron would, would be a Christian. He would choose me. So I'm going to choose him. No. What this text says and what the rest of Scripture says is God did look through the tunnels of time, down time, history's timeline, and he saw that nobody would choose him. And so he had to choose some. That's what he saw. He saw nobody's going to choose me. i got to step in. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, there's that word again, these whom he predestined, he also called, these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the context of that verse, of the predestination of God, the, the electing grace of God, the context is just a few verses later. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the what? Love of Christ. Who? He has built his argument and the root of his argument for the love of Christ, the solid, firm love of Christ for his people, that it is completely dependable and unshakable, is his electing love, his predestination of his people. If he chose you, he said, if he chose you from eternity past, he's not going to give up on you now. That's the point. But if you deserved it and he kind of winged it, and he responded to your 
coming to him and that's how you became a Christian, then, well, it's, it's a lot more shaky ground, your salvation is. And the love of Christ is, well, we'll see if it endures. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in, in the truth. He says, You are brethren beloved by the Lord. How do we see the belovedness of the Lord? That He chose you from the beginning for salvation. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7 is this, you could say, a long sermon from the old, old Moses to the young new generation about to go into uh, the promised land. And he wants to remind them of something. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in, more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not you. It has nothing to do with you. The only thing that you have to bring to salvation is your, is your depravity and your sin that cries out for wrath and that is in complete need of forgiveness. That's all we bring. All you have to offer for your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. So you see, it is absolute kindness, mercy, and grace that anyone escapes God's wrath at all. The reason why he chose you and not someone else is not because he's unjust, but because he loves you. That's it. And because he is a God who, of his word. When he promises something, he makes good on his promise. That's why he chooses us. Nothing in the sinner draws out the favor of God. It is not what is in you, but what is in God that moved him to choose you. Isn't that wonderful? Are you tracking with me? This is stunning. Because I know my sinfulness. I know my depravity. Even as a believer, I know my tendency towards sin and how much more it was before Christ changed me. And yet in the midst of that depravity, in the midst of my transgressing his law, he set his love on me. He had affection towards me in my sin. As I was shaking my fist toward him, he loved me with tenderness and mercy and grace. Oh, Christian, let that melt your heart this morning. Truly, the fact that God would set his love on any sinner at all 
is more beautiful than 10,000 sunsets, Christian. Well, what does this mean for you today? It's good to hear and know about these truths. But how do we be doers of this distinct love of God? Third, the product of distinction. Well, first of all, well, turn with me back to Exodus chapter 8. We actually see one thing from here. But before we get there, first of all, as I mentioned before, husbands, this means that you are commanded to love your wife like this. If you have tasted men, if you have tasted the distinct love of God, then you must love your wife distinctly. There must be an intimacy, a strength, a devotion, an attention, a sweetness, and a power to your love that is distinct for your wife above all else even above your children. Your wife, men, should feel special in this way. Did not your heart warm as I told you how specially God treats you? Make your wife feel the same way as she hears and sees your love for her. But also, Exodus chapter 8 Verse 26, Moses said, it is not right to do so. This is in reply to, to Pharaoh saying, go sacrifice to your God within the land. Don't go anywhere. You can sacrifice. You can worship your God, but you don't, don't leave. We still need our workforce. Moses says, it's not right for us to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. That is out there. You see, what the Israelites would sacrifice to God is actually what the Egyptians worshipped. So the Egyptians worshipped the sheep, and the other animals that the Israelites were commanded to sacrifice to God. So for the Israelite to sacrifice those animals would have been deeply offensive to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians would likely have killed the Israelite if they saw them sacrificing their own idols in their own land. What does this mean? Even here, we see a distinction between God's people and Pharaoh's people. Between God's nation and the pagans. What the pagan sinner loves, we are to, as it were, hand over to God. What the world prizes, we are to be willing to give up. We must not idolize what the world idolizes, in other words. You should not worship the same thing they do. You should not prize the same thing they do. You should not value the same thing they do. No, your direction for whom you worship and what you prize and what you value comes from the word of God, 
not from the television. You must live differently, church, because God loves you differently. First Peter, as we close, says, First Peter 2, 9-12, You are a chosen race. Look at the distinction. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a set-apart nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, distinct. You had not received mercy, but now you have received the distinct mercy of God. What's the product then? Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What is, how does the distinctness of being a Christian flesh itself out in your distinct life? Well, one, you proclaim his excellencies. Two, you abstain from fleshly lusts. Three, you keep your behavior excellent. That is, you have a good testimony and reputation in the world. Four, I think that's four. The thing in which they slander you. So that is... That is there should be things where you just collide with the, where you butt heads with the world, as it were. There are things like holding to God's truths, holding to God's standards, His demands. If we do that, if you're loyal to hold to what God says is truth and what God demands, if you do that, the world will look at you, I promise you, they will look at you and they will slander you. If that's not happening, something's wrong. So, one is you proclaim his excellencies. Two, you abstain from fleshly lusts. Three, you, you have excellent behavior or, or you're above reproach in the world. Four, you stand for God's truths, stand for, for the word of God and you are slandered for it. Lastly, good deeds. Do good. We should be known as a people of good deeds. Kindness, mercy, benevolence. The greatest deed that we could ever do for a sinner is to tell him of the gospel. So, yes, God loves the whole world. But there is a special love that Christ has for his bride. Just like the distinct love of a husband for his wife, above and set apart from all other women, so is a love of Christ for you, dear Christian. So be thankful for his love. Find great beauty in that distinct love of God. Rest in the safety of that love, Christian. That he would choose anyone, let alone a great sinner like you and I, is to be sweet to your ears. And remember 
that you are called to live out that separation from the world in your day-to-day actions. Always reminding yourself of the love of God to choose us and save us. Live differently because God loves you differently. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, forgive us for taking your love for granted, for thinking that we deserve it somehow, or we've earned your favor even as a believer. Forgive us, Lord, for our pride. Oh no, Lord, you you did not love us because of anything in us. Lord, you loved us simply because you loved us. You saved us simply because you loved us. We thank you, Lord, because we know we would have never chosen you. We would never have chose you, Lord. So, Lord, we are a thankful people. We are a humble, thankful people. Lord, this should cause us to, to sing all the more richly. Lord, to sing from the great depths of our hearts of the love of God. Because we know we don't deserve it. And God, may we be your mouthpiece in this world. May we declare that the world is under the sway of the evil one, enslaved to sin and death, destined to an eternity of hell. And may we offer them freedom from that sin, deliver, deliverance from that judgment in the finished work of Christ on the cross. No, oh God, I pray if there's anybody here with us this morning that doesn't know you, that hasn't bowed the knee, that they would do that even today. God, we thank you for sending your son. And as we turn now to your table, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would remember you in great vividness and clarity. And that we would, it would draw our hearts to love you even more today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, we're going to...